friend welcome back to another episode of the mark rose podcast you know i'm hanging out vancouver island i'm kicking it in tofino right now you know how when you need silence there's all of a sudden everyone's mowing their damn lawn and hammering and sawing shit all over so if you hear a saw or a hammer in the background it's likely only because i wanted to record (laughs) this intro for the podcast you know i'm out here uh, a couple reasons. One, I needed some forest bathing to bring my nervous system back down to a freaking baseline of being connected to nature just from, you know, once you visit New York, you got to do that anyways. I don't know how people live there full time. Great place to inject yourself into, but load to live there. I don't even know. So many horns. Everyone honks all the time at everything. It's just like their heart beating about everything. Oh, cars aren't moving. I'll honk anyway, so you will move less fast. Like, it's ridiculous. Anyway, I um, am out here. I made a commitment in 2019 that I would get quote unquote good at surfing. And um, I think compared to how I was, which was really bad, you know, people are like, oh, do you surf? I'm like, I spend time in the ocean with a board and waves. That is the equivalent of my surfing. But I took a lesson and I got to tell you, I'm like getting on waves I'm doing some turns. I'm doing sub surfing, which I think regular surfers don't like stand up paddleboard surfers. But hey, I spend my time away from them. I go hang out in my lonesome. And it's been pretty cool. And one thing about surfing, which I think is just so important to the aspect of life and hiking, you know, I've been out here connecting to the forest and going on hikes in the rainforest and that type of thing. And one thing about it is, You have to be in flow. When you're on a wave, you have to be completely present. When you're in the ocean and you're on a board and all the moments have to meet for you to catch that wave, you have to get very intentional. And one of the fastest ways to find flow is to do things like surfing, is to do things that you just demand your absolute presence. And then you can start to compare those things to your presence in regular life. Plus, you can't use your phone, so you also get to experience your brain in a way where technology is not around, which is a real freeing aspect of your brain. I've also been reading and learning a little more about how just the baseline characteristic of having phones actually increases our anxiety because there's so much more that's possible going on and that we might be missing. And I used to definitely adhere to the, or like, you know, if someone said, you know, I get FOMO. I'm like, I too used to totally get FOMO, fear of missing out, if you don't know what that means. But now I get the joy of missing out, JOMO, which is like, JOMO, right? It just sounds cool. It's like YOLO, but way cooler, because let's be honest, YOLO got a little annoying there for a little bit. So anyways, I won't drag on this intro. Um, but to say, go find your flow. Go find your moment. Go do that thing that connects you back to you. Leave your phones at home, put them on airplane mode, whatever you need to do so that you can focus and just be present to yourself, to your feelings. You know, because there's this aspect of we get addicted to things, we um, get addicted to distraction when we're about to feel a feeling we don't like. And um, it is really a, such a transformational moment when you begin to stay in the feeling you're so used to distracting yourself from 
because it's likely a feeling that you learned to avoid when you were young. And so it's really part of that reparenting aspect. Looking at why you're addicted to anything, which can be something simple like your phone, but could be something that feels more restrictive or like more of a regular type of addiction like alcohol, drugs, cigarettes, um, sugar. Sugar is a big one. And, you know, if you ever, as a kid, I definitely use sugar to soothe feelings. So baked goods, man, candy. Oh, gosh, Lord, those squishy candies are my favorite. Five cents candies, you know what I'm talking about? We call them that in Canada, five cent candies, but like gummy candies. Anyways, so get your flow on, figure it out. That's that's my message of this morning. And this week's guest, so I felt a little nervous at the beginning of this uh, interview, which I'm sure you'll pick up on, or maybe you won't, and now I just gave you a um, cognitive bias to look for it. But the reason I was nervous is because I had this guy in my kitchen who, at the beginning of my sort of discovery of self and what relationships really meant, um, it brought me to his book, which is called Sex at Dawn. And it's, you know, he's going to go through what it's really all about. But it's, you know, in a lot of ways about who humans really are and, you know, what we're really like uh, sexually. And as opposed to what we're told through the religious lens and through the lens of politics and systems and oppression and systems and all that kind of stuff, just like who are we actually as opposed to who we try to suppress ourselves into being. And it was, it's such a beautiful book. It's often considered sort of the Bible of polyamory. Um, and I think it's important to know that going into listening to this and knowing that, uh, and he's going to speak to some of the aspects of the interpretation of his work. And I think the most important thing in listening to this podcast, but also the work that you're doing in discovering yourself, is recognizing that you are all, it's all about collecting more information for you to figure out who you are and what feels good for you to love and what type of relationships you want to build and cultivate. And you only know that through cultivating relationships that don't serve you and going down roads that don't feel good and undoing and unlayering the systems of what you've been taught about how you're supposed to be as a human being. And this is to say that you're supposed to pick the relationship structure that works for you, that the, the thing that feels right for you. And that might change over time. That might, you know, just like in any relationship, it's going to evolve over time. And, you know, my friend, Dr. Alexandra Solomon has this great quote where she talks about how if you do stay married to one person over time, it will actually be a constructive or in a relationship with one person, you don't have to get married, but it will be many marriages. It will be many people um, in that you will change and they will change and you should and that's the beautiful aspect of shared growth. And also that growth will sometimes take you away from people. You know, that that's just the truth and the reality of life. That we have to cut cords much like this saw is doing in the background of this recording. So with all that said, Dr. Christopher Ryan is a phenomenal man, really brilliant, very funny, very charismatic. And uh, without further ado... Um, I hope that you really enjoy this week's podcast. And if you could please uh, go to wherever you listen to it, 
give it five stars and give it a written review. That really helps pump it up. And also um, share it, please. Get this uh, message out there for people to figure out their relationships and create the types of relationships that really fulfill and serve them. Christopher Ryan, man, I, uh, doctor, doctor, Christopher, (laughs) it's, uh, it is like a bit of a, I guess I'm kind of fanboying because, you know, as I said to you when we first met, I, I recognize your voice from listening. So for those of you listening, Christopher Ryan has an amazing podcast called Tangentically Speaking. And, um, in the, well, the continued moments, but the, one of the first primary destructive moments of my life where I was like, who am I? What was I taught? All that stuff. Um, not only was your book, um, Sex at Dawn, one of the books that really allowed me to see that what we've been taught has in some ways been a lot of lies. Mm-hmm. And I guess in the restructuring of what relationship means to me and to people and all those things, it's just been, uh, you've been part of the journey. So to have you on my podcast is, is such an honor. Thanks. So I appreciate it. Thanks. I'm really glad to be here. Yeah. It's bizarre when I hear people say that. And, and I, I hear that a lot about the book, of course. And sometimes it's, you know, I, I get emails from people say, you know, your book ruined my marriage. <laughs> <laughs> and others that say your book saved my marriage. So I kind of, um, you know, stepped back and, and I, I feel like people have their relationship with books that it's almost like the author, you're like a parent and then someone has a relationship with your child and it's really between them. Yeah. You know I mean? yeah. Like you wish you could just put them with the book. Like you guys talk it out. I, In a way. Yeah. 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 And, and, and I don't mean to sound ungrateful or, or anything because I think it's fantastic, but I do recognize like people have relationships with, um, with books or probably it's probably the same with movies and TV shows and anything else that is really between the, the thing. Like I wrote that book, 12, 13 years ago, you know, it came out nine years ago. So it was really fresh in my mind a dozen years ago. Yeah. You know, where somebody else, somebody could have read it yesterday and for them it's really fresh. And like, They're like, oh. on page 99, yeah. you said. I'm like, what did I? <laughs> well, and also that it's sort of a time stamp or a time capsule of, uh, I would imagine, a passionate section of what you were studying and learning and all those things. And of I would imagine your interests have shifted a little bit. What your even the topic of relationship and design and all that has that shifted much since? Uh, you mean personally, or or my sense of this of the the knowledge and yeah, like science. like even how the research that you did and all the principles you share has that evolved? Even how it contributed to what you believe at the time to now? Uh, yeah, sure. Um, I, I don't think my understanding of, you know, the subject matter of the book has changed very much. So I, I keep up with the literature and I haven't seen really anything in the literature that's made me fundamentally change, you know, the arguments and mm-hmm. about the way our ancestors behave sexually. Uh, in fact, I tend to see more evidence that supports those arguments. I feel like it's becoming more mainstream, which is interesting to watch. Um, as far as, you know, my personal take on things, you know, when I wrote the book, I was 38, 39. Now I'm in my mid fifties. So, you know, that's, I don't know. Um, time changes your perspective on, on everything, I guess. Uh, 
Yeah, yeah, I don't know how to answer that really other than to say yes. <laughs> yeah, well, as we do our shifts, our beliefs shift over time and in the when you wrote the book, I feel like it came out at a time where there was so much more interest in beginning to be more acceptable, maybe the interest in the understanding about open relationships, polyamorous relationships, polygamy, all that kind of stuff. And we, I've felt like we've sort of been um, filtered away from any evidence of there being anything other than monogamy. You know, like when we learn in school, I, you know, I was saying to you, I'm a recovering Catholic of some sense. And there was certainly never a, com- there, there was never an option given other than the option that you observed in society. Yeah. Yeah. I just saw a thing today on Twitter. Some bishop, I think he was, um, was, you know, saying that homosexuality was against God's will because God obviously gave us sex um, for procreation. And, you know, it just strikes me how incredibly ignorant that is that, you know, here are people who think that sex is only about procreation. And, you know, I wanted to say to the guy, you know, a lot of mammals, that's true. They have sex only when the female's ovulating. Humans aren't like that. And you're a Catholic priest, or at least you were for a long time. You know there's a lot of sex going on. <laughs> yeah. <the> babies, dude. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so you might want to check in with God about that. Because uh, if God meant sex for humans to be only about reproduction, well, then we're doing it wrong 99% of the time, you know? When it's so much about connection. That's and and yeah. Yeah, and although procreation is a nice side effect most of the time, uh, it's it's we have so much sex just for the joy of it. Right, we have sex. Uh, you know, I did sort of an envelope back of the envelope calculation when I was doing sex at dawn. I figured we have humans have sex around a thousand times per conception. Wow. Yeah, most animals, including most primates, have sex around a dozen times per conception. So much so, less. Yeah. It's, so we're we're humpers by design. We're humpers, yeah. you know, <laughs> and the other mammals that have sex for non-reproductive purposes are very few. So, yeah. so the thing is, that bishop, he's right about almost all mammals except us. Except for the ones that he's trying to convince right. exactly. otherwise. So we're this glaring exception along with dolphins, bonobos, and chimpanzees, all of whom are highly social, highly intelligent mammals. Mm-hmm. And, and in all of those cases, we've co-opted sex for social, as you said, for bonding, creating intimacy, creating trust. Sex has, has evolved to fulfill additional functions mm-hmm. in those species that turn out to be far more important than purely reproduction. Otherwise, we would only have sex you know, male, female, when the female's ovulating, we wouldn't have... That'd be awful. <laughs> Just even when the female, you know, even when women are menstruating, people have sex, you know, sure. so it's... Postmenopausal. The, yeah, yeah. you know, Any opportunity. Yeah, yeah. The, I haven't found in your book, and I guess for people who have maybe not heard of your book yet, um, what would be sort of a, a brief encapsulation of what the general message is of it? Well, basically, it's trying... It, it's arguing that humans evolved as a promiscuous species and looking at the evidence for that. Uh, it's not a book of advocacy. It's not saying we should be promiscuous. It's not saying we should all have open relationships. It's not saying any 
There's no advice in the book other than let's be honest about what kind of an animal we are and start from that. So the conversation about how we're going to live our lives should start from a realistic, scientifically informed, um, objective, unbiased, at least in my opinion. The truth. I think it's the truth. It is. Other people might not, but at least it's looking at human beings as an animal. It's looking at the four sources of, of information are... Other primates, uh, particularly chimps and bonobos, who are extremely closely related, more yeah. than 99% share DNA with us. Um, whereas, you know, in the mainstream narrative, they're looking at swans and <laughs> penguins and, you know, prairie voles to explain human monogamy. Yes. You don't need to look at fucking prairie voles. Why don't you look at the things most closely related to us, right? If you want to understand why your dog is pissing on the carpet, you don't go and study pigeons you might want to look at coyotes or wolves right so anyway so we looked at um uh chimps and bonobos and i say we i co-authored the book with my wife casilda jetta who's a psychiatrist from uh, mozambique so she brought in her medical expertise and, and multicultural perspective anyway so we look at um uh, primates we look at anthropology so particularly um, groups of hunter-gatherers who are living the way that our ancestors did <clears throat> for over 95% of our existence as a species, meaning that they're um, nomadic, um, egalitarian, sharing-based societies, which is um, are qualities that are universal among hunter-gatherers around the world. So we can extrapolate from that to with a high degree of certainty that our ancestors lived the same way. So we look at their sexual practices. We also looked at uh, contemporary psychosexual research, like what kinds of things turn people on, what kind of issues do people have in their relationships, um, long-term monogamy, you know, what problems do people run into, what kind of porn are people getting into, things like that. And then we look at and this was the area that was most sort of um, surprising for me is um, human um, reproductive anatomy and physiology. So, you know, the fact that men have testicles outside their bodies, but gorillas' testicles are inside their bodies. What does that mean? And the fact that men are about 20% larger than women, that's called um, sexual um, dimorphism. Um, that's a significant factor uh, you know, the fact that women can have multiple orgasms and men generally can't, uh, the, the chemical composition of each spurt of semen in ejaculation is different. And what does that tell us? Wow. So there's all sorts of information in the body and in the, the sort of the behavior of a species that tells you about its evolution. And so that's a really rich source of information as well. So drawing on those four sources of information, you can create a picture of the kind of sexual lives our ancestors lived that's quite comprehensive. And um, so that's what the book is. And it's just sort of saying, this is the kind of animal we are. What you do with this is up to you. But the tragedy that we were trying to address, I think, is that a lot of people are suffering unnecessarily because of unrealistic and unfounded assumptions about what kind of creature we are. And so 
Um, you know, people, for example, feel that, uh, like that uh, bishop I was talking about, think that homosexuality uh, makes no sense. And so it's, a, it's against God's will. It's an aberration. It's totally unnatural. It's a, it's a perversion. And mm-hmm. so until, you know, 50 years ago, it was treated as a diagnostic uh, psychiatric disorder. That's uh, crazy. People were giving electroshock therapy and, uh, or, or masturbation is a totally horrible thing and you're going to die, you're going to lose your mind, you know, all this bullshit. So these sorts of false uh, premises that are taught in our culture, as you said, you know, lies that are being told to young people uh, create a lot of unnecessary suffering. So much shame. So much shame, so much dysfunction, so, much, so many broken relationships over nothing over bullshit because you're attracted to someone other than your husband you think you think there's something wrong with you or the relationship yeah yeah there's nothing wrong with anybody you're just a homo sapien you're a human being you're meant to have that drive you're meant to want to what you do with what your drive is is totally fair you know it's up to you and i as you said at the very beginning that you know like your book triggered people but each some people and others it saves their marriage and some and it's all about what from you know because you're going to find in the book the evidence you need to support whatever you want to do or whatever you know what I mean? Well, what you find is evidence to support your appetites, mm-hmm. right? It bums me out when I hear, and I do sometimes, that, you know, some guy gives his wife the book and says, look, read this. It'll explain why I get to cheat. Yeah. No, it doesn't. No, it doesn't. <laughs> yeah. That's the opposite of what it's about. It's saying, be honest with yourself. Be honest with each other. It doesn't give anybody excuses to lie, at least according to one of the authors, and I'm sure Casella agrees. It's not about you know. It's not about giving people um, cover for their lies and their deceptions. It's about the opposite. It's saying, look, be honest with your partner, be honest with yourself, and you'll have a much better chance of success. I said, you know, I gave a TED talk years ago, yeah, and in that I said, um, you know, the fact that you've decided to become a vegetarian doesn't mean bacon suddenly stops smelling good, (laughs) right? So you can decide to be monogamous. That doesn't mean it's going to be easy Mm -hmm. because you are the sort of animal you are. So if you understand that and you expect that, then you'll probably be a lot more successful in facing the challenges. Yeah, especially when you're, if all your sexual needs are being met by one partner, that puts a lot of pressure in and of itself upon not only the partner, but the relationship. Right. You know, not to say that that's bad, but it's like, what do you do with that? How do you maintain, you know, like, how do you maintain the uniqueness of the same partner? You know, and you got to get creative. You got to, you know, I know in the research on looking at like what maintains long term connection, you know, and some of it was about like date nights, but doing the same fucking date night doesn't make anyone excited because it's the same shit. But it's like getting out and doing things that are unique experiences that are unfamiliar, that are adventurous. And, you know, I think it's not it wouldn't be that difficult to extrapolate that to sexual experience too to like trying different things but there's so much taboo about even the conversation about sexual creativity Mm. you know like they didn't talk about sex when i was growing up Mm. you know they didn't talk about sex at school the idea was we'll talk about that sex create babies you don't want a baby outside of wedlock so just don't have sex or you know i have a friend who grew up in the south and in the south uh at the school she was at the boys were told that if they masturbated they were gay 
<laughs> so, like, imagine there's all these young men going around with sexual <laughs> identity issues. Sorry, I'm right? I'm how gay I am. <laughs> yeah, how gay <laughs> all men act. <laughs> but yeah, those types of misinformation cause uh, so much shame. Yeah. And then this inability to, because if you're a sexual species, which you are, um, and sex is considered bad, or sexual thoughts, sexual desires considered bad, then you're you're going to want to hide your desires. Yeah. And then they're going to live in the halls of Craigslist. You know? Or, you know, in the dark closets of the church. Yeah. Right? I mean, all this, the secret, secretive, um, you know, these shadows, a lot of nasty shit goes on in those shadows, you know? And, um, yeah, I just, you know, you and I were talking earlier about, I just finished this book, Civilized to Death, that's coming out in October. And there's a section in there where I compare Dutch sex ed and American sex ed. And, you know, in Holland, the way they deal with sex ed is just like totally everything on the table. It's like how they deal with drugs and, you know. Alcohol and all that stuff, yeah. Exactly. It's like, okay, here's the thing. And um, if a 15, 16-year-old kid has a boyfriend or a girlfriend, they bring them home for dinner, the parents meet them, and they talk about condoms, and okay, everything's fine. Well, you know, they can sleep together. They sleep together, the kid will spend the night in the room. I have a Dutch buddy, he's like, yeah, that's that's normal, you know. Wow. And their rates of teen pregnancy are a 17th of what they are in the U.S. Wow. 17th. The rates of, of transmission of sexually transmitted diseases is a fraction of what it is. So there's no question that that any of this bullshit that we're doing in the U.S. is effective. It's not. <laughs> what, it's you mean totally teaching effective. abstinence isn't effective? Yeah, oh, exactly. Because people aren't going to be abstinent. You're going to get around a boob and you're not going to know what to do. Right. You know, or you're going to drink alcohol in order to reduce your anxiety and shame. Right. But then you're going to not be responsible in the situation. Or you might time travel right through it. You know, not even remember. The most important part's that connection. Yeah. You know, and you're not even connected to yourself in that experience. Yeah, it's almost as if the culture is intending to produce dysfunctional, unhappy people. Right, which would then feed the system of being able to numb the dysfunction and unhappiness. And then they can sell you something, you know, that will supposedly make it better. Like they can, you know, use those boobs to sell you pickup trucks. (laughs) God, why did I want a truck? That's the... So in your book, um, what is it? What is it called? Civilized to death. Civilized to death. So how does? Yeah, what's the? Tell tell me yeah, about that. Pre-order on Amazon. Uh, that is basically. It's it's called the subtitle is the price of progress, and, and basically what I'm trying to do in that book is say, ask this question that I feel very rarely gets asked, which is. Is civilization worth the trouble? Now that, to most people, that sounds like an absurd question. (laughs) You know, like, of course it is, man. We have the internet. We have cars. We have this, we have that. We have medical care and we have, you know, abundant food and all these things. But if you really look at the question in depth, what you find is most people are very deeply misinformed about prehistory and about modernity. So if you look at um, prehistory with some accuracy, what you see is that it's nowhere near as bad as you've been. Ta- and you talk about lies, we, you know, we've been told forever since you know Thomas Hobbes and before. <laughs> Thomas Hobbes said 
Life Before the State was solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and short. That's one of the most famous phrases in the English language. It was none of those things. (laughs) In fact, we live in the most solitary age. There are more people who live alone right now, both as a raw number and as a percentage, than ever before in history. Wow. There, uh, I forget the statistic, I think it was three out of five people, adults, were asked if they, how many intimate friends they had that they could share personal things with. Three out of five said none. Wow. None. There's no one in my life I can confide in. Wow. It's insane, right? So hunter-gatherers don't have that problem. No. You know, and, and a point I wanted to make earlier, we were talking about promiscuous. When I say we evolved from a promiscuous species, that doesn't mean that our ancestors were having sex with strangers. There were no strangers. Yeah. What we mean by promiscuous is that they had several ongoing intimate sexual relationships at any given time. Yeah. But those are with people they've known their whole lives in most cases. And for the most part, would uh, the everyone would have known of those events. Or sorry, maybe some yeah. might be in a little secrecy. But, yeah, yeah. yeah. Some they wander off into the woods. But, <laughs> but anyway, the, so solitary, poor. Well, poor, what do we mean by poor? Poverty is a comparative notion. If everybody has the same, then nobody's poor and yeah. nobody's rich, right? Uh, hunter-gatherers work three hours a day, roughly, on average. And when I say work, what I mean is things like weaving baskets, weaving hammocks, making arrows, hunting, fishing, gathering berries. These are things that Three we, hours a day, three damn. Three hours a day. They got it right. Yeah. Um, nasty, brutish, very little warfare in prehistory. We're, we're told that in prehistory, everybody was on the edge of, stur- of survival, starving, you know, fighting for... This is all bullshit. There's no evidence for this. And so people like Steven Pinker and Richard Dawkins, they're the sort of modern neo-Hobbesians, I I call them, um, promoting this idea that we're so lucky to live in civilization because life before civilization was just brutal and horrible. Everyone To romanticize what is currently going on versus... We're like animals in a zoo, and the zookeepers are telling us how lucky we are in our cages. <laughs> that sounds like good political rhetoric. Right. Yeah. So that's what I'm, I'm looking at in, in Civilized to Death. Like, you know, let's, let's really look at this. How did people live before civilization? Why, by the way, does nobody voluntarily join civilization? There are all these stories of an accounts, uh, historical written accounts of... Um, white people who are captured by Indians in the colonial times in the United States. Same thing in Brazil and South America. And they uh, live with the Indians for a time, and then they're recaptured by the whites. And the first chance they get, they run back to the Indians. Why? Hmm. There's never been a case of an Indian wanting to live with the white people. So I go through a lot of these examples in the book. People who've seen both ways of living always choose to go back and live in the woods with the Indians. Why is that? Well, their way of life is clearly superior in many, in many aspects. And in fact, what I argue is that it's human and that we are living in this artificial, inhuman social structure that we call civilization and which constantly propagandizes to make us think that this is great. But if you look at the facts, 
hunter-gatherer people almost never kill themselves. There's no mm. recorded cases of depression, no diabetes, no heart disease. So we say, oh, but the snake could have... Sure, there were snakes. Yes, an infection. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yes. But they weren't dying from strokes and heart disease and all these other things, car accidents, you know. And, and so a lot of, if you look at a lot of the arguments in favor of civilization, they amount to um, either propaganda or just outright misinformation. For example, lots of people, you know, I talk about this stuff at parties or whatever, and a lot of people say, yeah, but we live twice as long, right? You can't uh, argue with that. That is the word. Well, you know, yeah. Because most people buy that. I've, I taught in medical schools where the medical students were like, yeah, we live twice as long. I quote doctors in the book saying, um, an orthopedic surgeon at UCSF saying, well, the reason people have so many back issues is that the human body wasn't designed to last this long. People died at 30 or 35. And so the back, of course, and at 60, your back is, you're not designed to, that's bullshit. <laughs> Hunter-gatherers live into their 70s. It's total bullshit. Where, yeah, explain to people where that misinformation comes from. Well, it comes from a statistical sleight of hand, which is that if you look at infant mortality among hunter-gatherers, it's quite high. Any, somewhere between two and 20 and 30% of kids die before they reach 15. Wow. Um, yeah. That's high. Yeah. Right? And in our, in our world, depending what your race is and what country you live in, it's 1% or less. So, so when you look at that and you say, okay, at birth, life expectancy, which would include all those kids who die, yeah. is going to, the statistic yeah. is way down, right? But look at what we don't count in the modern world. We don't count abortion. There are tens of millions of abortions per month in the world. We don't count those. Kids who are born with deformities or congenital problems where they're not going to survive, they would have been sacrificed by undergatherers. So it's almost like a postnatal hmm. abortion, whereas those things are detected in prenatal testing now and those fetuses are aborted. So it makes no sense not to count both. Yeah, like if you're going to do one calculation with one, do both. Right. Yeah. And so if you included abortion, the numbers would change quite a bit. Um, also, infanticide in civilization has been very, very high. In, in medieval Europe, for example, um, there was rampant infanticide in foundling hospitals, it was called. Um, anyway, it's, it's a statistical trick. Now, I'm not disputing that infant mortality among hunter-gatherers is higher than it is among um, so-called civilized, civil mm -hmm. um, people. Um, but that's a much more nuanced question, uh, which I get into in the book, um, than most people think. Um, and if you look at what's more sort of informative is the modal age. So it's the age at which an animal typically dies if it isn't killed by a predator. For example, um, you know, German Shepherd, it's probably around 12, mm -hmm. right? If, if it, a German Shepherd lives a normal life, it'll die around 12, 13 years of age. Humans, it's anywhere from 68 to 90, depending on the study that you're looking at. So that's the normal lifespan of Homo sapiens, 68 to 90 years, not 35. No human being has ever been old at 35. <laughs> not like looking like Benjamin Button, right, you yeah. know, reversing. Well, I think the, you know, when I read your book, Sex at Dawn, what I loved about it is that it 
as you've you know said it it sort of like connected me to the grounded truth of who we actually are and what we're actually like you know mm-hmm. i and that's better because then you can make sense of the urges you have you can make sense of the feelings you got and in i am i'm looking forward to your new book because it sounds to me like it's going to be doing the same thing which is connecting us to the truth of why we're hunter gatherer society is actually better for us and i think the future i mean, maybe that's not the compelling you know the main argument of the actual uh, book, but it seems to me like we're so overtly digitally connected now that we seem to be, um, you know, as you said, more lonely, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there, there's this whole movement in, in Japan of kids who won't come out of their bedrooms. Yeah. If they're not even entering relationships of any kind other than yeah. digital or sex dolls, electric yeah. sex dolls, apparently. Yeah. Yeah, I, it makes you wonder that. I mean, I talk about this um, this uh, case of a locust that I don't know if you've heard about this. There's a great essay in Aeon magazine, this online magazine, a couple of years ago um, about how locusts begin life as grasshoppers and. What happens is grasshoppers are, there's this particular species in North Africa and the grasshoppers are dispersed and they're peaceful and they're kind of quiet and they just do their thing eating grass and don't bother anybody. And then the rains come and then lots of grass and the grasshoppers reproduce and there are lots of grasshoppers and then the rains stop and the grasslands start to shrink. And as the grasslands shrink, the grasshoppers get more tightly packed together and they reach a certain um, population density where dormant genes are triggered and there's this epigenetic effect and they it, it's like a doctor what is mr jekyll doctor oh yeah doctor dr jekyll, jekyll mr hyde yeah it's they transform not over generations like individually they morph into these their back legs grow longer, their front legs grow shorter, their coloring changes, the shape of their head changes. Oh my gosh, I gotta look this oh, up. Fucking creepy, man. And they become <laughs> highly aggressive. They become cannibalistic. They start nipping at each at each other, and they form these swarms. And these swarms of locusts, the biblical swarm of locusts. That's yeah. They swarm over. They eat everything within sight. Destroy everything. And then they, they attack each other, and then 90% of them die, or 95% of them die, and then the 5% that are left go back into being grasshoppers again. What? Yeah. This is insanity. Yeah. So when I read that, I thought, that's what civilization is. It's taken us and transformed us into a different kind of being. Yeah. And we've got these lingering memories of what it was like to be a grasshopper. We remember what it was like to live in these cooperative, intimate groups of people who grew to get, knew each other, depended on each other, trusted each other. That's why solitary confinement is the worst punishment uh, we've got for us. Yeah. Right? We're social beings. We're social animals. When we cut that off, we suffer. We get sick. It's, it's just like cutting off vitamin D to somebody. Or, you know, you're going you're gonna to get sick from it. We're not made for chronic stress. No. Look at us. We we freak out under chronic stress. So our immune systems get... Stressed. We get filled with inflammation and exactly. disease. Yeah. So you can see 
the echoes or the reflections of where we came from in these contemporary problems that we have, right? In our depression, our suicide. Yeah. I mean, all these kids in college now suffering from extreme stress and mental anxiety disorders. and yeah. yeah. Right. I mean, the social media, everybody's got a perfect life except me. And, and perfect butts. I don't even know what's happening. <laughs> yeah, it's so true. I think the future of, you know, it seems like the future will be how do you unplug and go back? You know, I was talking to some friends about that the other day of, like forest bathing, I guess, would be very much what just the that's just what hunter gatherers did. They lived in a in the perfect living room, right? You know, and I find that I was just out visiting my sister. She lives in the interior of BC, and I was sitting on her porch. She lives on an acreage, and I was there for five days. And my my resting heart rate dropped to forty one. Hmm. I was like sitting there. I'm like. Oh my God, I'm in pure heaven right yeah. now. And then I got back on a plane and flew. I'm in Vancouver. This isn't even a stressful city. No. You know, this like. Cities go. This is great. Yeah. About as good as it gets. And I find like that's what's. There seem, I believe that there will be a massive movement to unplugging. To like. Because, you know, you look at a. So, as you were saying, you follow someone's social media who has the perfect, seemingly perfect life and then you feel shittier about yourself yeah. you know you think these i was reading an article the other day that i think it was something like 85 percent of teenagers aspire to be an influencer yeah and i was like what like what does that even mean like you're gonna travel and sell stuff which is great don't get me wrong i don't want to shit on the job because i'm sure it's there was probably a job considered equivalent it's to that job. when we were young yeah yeah it's a great job yeah yeah everyone <laughs> But it is, it's interesting that like just the, what we aspire to has been massively shifted and even what we consider relationships yeah. are really, you know, I feel like there's a lot of, um, surface level experience now and a lot of depth. Well, everything, you know, I, I look at the trajectory of civilization and what I see is things or experiences or qualities of life that were free get removed and replaced by something that you can buy that is inferior so you know i'm looking at the table in front of us there's bottled water here there was no bottled water when i was a kid the water no. that came out of the tap was clean same yeah you know so now they contaminate the water and sell us this you know tap water that they filter and then charge <laughs> yeah. money yeah. In bottles that then end up in the ocean. So then we have to pay for, you know, plastic to, you know, it's just like there are these cycles of removing access to the commons, you know, yeah. the, the tragedy of the commons people talk about. Um, you remove people from access to that free stuff so that you can get them in the market economy. And the thing is, the real tragedy of this is that no one wins. I thought... When I started writing Civilized to Death, I thought, okay, rich people are doing this, you know, the, the sort of Marxist analysis, yeah. you know, the, they control the means of production, and so they control the media, and they control, so they're like putting out these messages, and blah, blah, blah. But then I looked at the research of rich people, and I see rich people are as miserable as everyone else, sometimes more so. Mm -hmm. They're even more isolated, right? Poor people actually have more um, intimacy and friendships than wealthy people. So if the winners of the game are losing, what who's what's going on? Yeah. What kind of game is this? This is a shitty game. It's a shitty ass game. Yeah. I used to think that 
I used to think of economics as if like we were all playing poker here at your house. Like four or five guys were playing poker. You win, I lose. That my money went to you. That's the way it works, right? But then I realized, like, no, wait, the winners are losing too. The winners go away from the table with less than they came with. So we're not playing at someone's house. We're playing in a casino mm. where everybody loses. Who's the casino? That's that's what I and that's why I started thinking of swarming behavior. Yeah, emergent. So I've got now. I'm into this whole thing. This isn't in the book. Um, but I got book three book three I don't think so man I'm tired Uh, (laughs) I got other ideas easier ideas for book three but I got into this whole thing about super organisms you know what I'm talking about like so you know a swarm of locusts is a super organism or a school of salmon or an anthill or a termite uh, colony yeah where individuals don't know really what they're doing they just do their little thing but it all fits into something that yeah. creates something larger than like a larger know. system a larger movement right. a larger yeah and it emerges so if you have a few if you have a dozen ants walking around on the table they're just sort of randomly walking around but if you had 500 ants on the table they would organize somehow yeah and there's no ant that's like okay everybody charge. It doesn't <laughs> it's got happen. a little microphone yeah it just <laughs> happens and so i think that something like that has happened with us as well that we have there's an emergent I'm sorry if this is like too abstract, but I love it. It seems like there's an emergent patterning in our species, just like salmon forming a school, and or you know ants forming a colony, and we are embedded in something that we don't understand, and it's larger than us, and it's got agendas that are different from us. That's so true that, and I think of that transformation that, you know, theoretically may have occurred from egalitarian societies to then agricultural, where all of a sudden you could own land and you could own people, and then you don't want people marrying people who are land, who are slaves, you want people marrying other people who are landowners, and you keep rich people rich, and poor people poor, and you keep rich people rich, and you keep poor people poor, and I wonder if it's something to do with that, that that because money came into it and possession and capitalism in a much grander scheme, that all of a sudden we're driven by, it's almost like shadow, you know, and what we're driven by to what we want to collect as a superorganism. Yeah. What are your theories? Yeah, I, I think I agree that it happened with the advent of civilization. And not only Western civilization, I think, you know, you look at the Aztecs or the Mayans or the Incas. You know, it's not that white people are evil and brown people are innocent and wonderful. The Aztecs were motherfuckers. You, this is, there's not an episode without an E, so don't worry. <laughs> okay. We're gonna, yeah, I want to keep a record alive, so don't worry. Uh, yeah, so it's it's not about whether the people were white or black or brown or whatever. It's about the social organization. Egalitarian societies operate on one level. Um, settled, accumulated wealth societies operate on another level. And by the way, there are examples of those societies that aren't agricultural. And in this part of the world, the Pacific Northwest, you had um, the Haida and and other uh, groups along the coast here that would harvest salmon and whales and smoke the meat and have accumulated wealth. 
And mm. they functioned like agricultural societies, even though they weren't growing food and harvesting and all that. They were harvesting and saving. Just a different resource. Right. So they ended up with the same hierarchical situations, slavery, treated women badly. All the same sort of suite of behavioral changes affected those societies, even though they weren't agricultural, because you get accumulated wealth that creates class differences. Yeah. Somebody's controlling it. Somebody needs to protect it. You know, you get it causes all these sources of conflict. Um, and yeah, that's I, I agree with you that that's where it starts. And when you get into that situation, especially one difference between the, the salmon based societies and agricultural societies is that the more land you have, the more food you can produce. So they become expansionist. Growth becomes, uh, and we still live in a growth-based economy. Yeah, right? absolutely. Everything has to grow. To get more. Get more. What's your year over year? What's your return? What's your return to stockholders? Right. Well, and also on a national level, right? GDP has to grow. Has to grow. There has to be a growth in productivity. We have to produce more. We have to convert more of nature into stuff. You know. And uh, that started with agriculture. Before 10,000 years ago, there was no growth. Population was relatively level uh, for hundreds of thousands. Why was that? Because, it, well, first of all, when you have high infant mortality, yeah. which we talked about before, right? That's why I say it's nuanced. Because, yeah, it's a tragedy when two out of five kids die, but it's also a tragedy when your population is doubling every generation. Yeah. Absolutely. Right? It's a different kind of tragedy. Just more strain on the whole ecosystem. Much Especially more when we don't res respect the ecosystem. Right. More disease, more starvation, more people living who aren't really wanted. Yeah. You know? um, Sarah Hurdy, a, a great primatologist and anthropologist, makes the point that hunter-gatherer, it's a tragedy that hunter-gatherer kids die, but the kids who survive, the roughly three out of five who survive to adulthood, they're healthy physically and mentally. They're they're wanted. They're cared for. There's no child abuse. There's no abandonment. So, you know, pick your tragedy, mm -hmm. basically. It's not as clear as, as we're often told. The other reason population goes up really quickly is in agricultural societies where you have access to milk from animals... The women stop breastfeeding much more quickly or never breastfeed at all. The kids get the milk from the cow or the goat or whatever, and then she can become pregnant again much quicker because women who are breastfeeding, especially if they have low body fat, as hunter-gatherers do, they stop ovulating. Mm. So a hunter-gatherer will um, typically breastfeed a child for four to five years, and during that time she can be having lots of sex, but she's very unlikely to get pregnant. So yeah, that's so interesting. The she'll have over a lifetime is much lower than um, a woman in a civilizational context. I didn't know that. That's interesting. And the the so the evolution of where relationship was sort of transformed in birth there was that the real movement towards monogamy was during that like in all of those where there was also this systemic super super organism sort of being right. created yeah. uh, that super organism it sounds to me um and i know stephanie Kuntz has talked a bit about this also needed sort of the stability of the systemic you know i don't want to put words into her mouth <laughs> but that it created this sort of systemic need for marriage for like 
monogamy, I guess. Yeah, well, it fit into the economics. Yeah. You know, that you were referring to earlier. When you have property that you've accumulated over your lifetime, herds of animals, land, buildings that you've, you know, worked to build, and you're staying in one place, which hunter-gatherers didn't. So hunter-gatherers had no property. Um, But when you have property and women have lost their status, women became basically domesticated animals with the advent of agriculture. Wow. Um, Then... As a man, you want to know who are your sons because yeah, the, your dowry, right? They're, yeah. You know, you're going to leave your property to them, and the only way to know who are your children is to control your wife's sexual behavior. Absolutely. So wow. that was the impetus, um, and also it was probably the first time that people understood um, on a wide scale that one sex act could result in a child. Before, there was no reason to really put that together because people are having sex and kids are getting born, but why would you necessarily connect it? You don't need to care as to who the father is because you don't have to pass property down. Right. That's freaking... You're communally raising kids. Everybody's related to everybody else. Everybody shares food. So who cares? Yeah. And, you know, we talked in Sex at Dawn about societies that thought that women got pregnant if they stepped over a smoky fire or you know, the <laughs> some that goddamn fire yeah uh. um and then there are societies lots of societies in the amazon that um believe that women become pregnant when they have um like a critical mass of semen inside them that it becomes a fetus <laughs> that she has accumulated enough right. that a, a baby is like a superorganism <laughs> is exactly. morphed. A baby forms from all that semen. So a woman who wants to have a, you know, kids who are smart and funny and good looking, she'll make sure that she has sex with the smart guy and the funny guy and the good looking guy to get the, <laughs> the combination. Yeah. And then when the child's born, all those guys will will be like, yeah, I'm the father. I'm the father, too. Like, it's a team thing. Oh, yeah, yeah. I've, I've heard of that. There's yeah. more than one society, right, sure. where m- every man that had sex with a woman would parent the child. Yeah, they're considered co-fathers of the child. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's interesting. So when you have agriculture and, you know, people are living with domesticated animals for the first time, then you see like, oh, wait, the black cow fucked the white or the black bull fucked the white <laughs> cow. And now we got these hey. black and white calves. <laughs> I get it. Hey, yeah. Right. So then it becomes that control of women's sexuality becomes really urgent. So the point that we made in Sex Dawn is that this male impulse to control women's sexual behavior is not innate it only came about relatively recently wow and with, with agriculture which tells you it can change right which of course. yeah that it's it it's almost like an epigenetic shift that is just expressing locus, man. yeah just yeah. expressing behaviorally rather than like a cellular expression yeah but you could argue those are often one in the same anyways sure there are lots of epigenetic changes that express as behavior it made me think of like is our microbiome then the accumulation of things that make us uh, one superorganism well that's it we you know we are super each one of us is a community of beings that yeah. don't even have our dna most of your body weight, if you took, if you like freeze dried yourself, take out all, all <laughs> yeah. the moisture, and then 
you know, separated the, the cells, the majority of your body weight doesn't have your DNA. So it's not strictly you. It's bacteria that live in your skin, in the waters of your eyes, in your blood, in your obviously in your gut. And uh, yeah, so each of us is a super organism. It's a community of, of animals, beings, working in synchronicity. Yeah, I, I had a guy in my podcast, Jeff Leach, who's a... Uh, one of the world's leading experts in uh, microbiome. F- fascinating dude. It's funny, I was in Texas in the van doing one of these trips. Yeah. Like I'm on now. And somebody, the beauty of, of it's the hashtag Vanthropology 2019. <laughs> so awesome. Yeah. Um, but anyway, so I was in uh, Southern Texas and someone who listens to my podcast was saw that I was, they follow me on Instagram and they're like, Hey, you're in Texas. You should, I got a buddy in Terlingua, this little town. And, uh, turned out we ended up in this town and I remembered the, the DM I got from this dude. And I reached out to this guy named Tony and I was like, Tony, I do the pod, I do this podcast, a friend of yours, you know, whatever. And said, I should look you up. And then Tony's like, Hey, we're having beers. Come on over. And it's just totally. I love how that works. Yeah. yeah. So I went over and there's a table, like a dozen people sitting there and um, really friendly and we're just talking. I'm up on one end of the table and Tony's like, oh, God damn, look how dirty this mug is. I'm going to die. And someone else said, ah, shut up. It's good for your microbiome. Right? <laughs> like Microbiome. You guys know about microbiome. That's cool. And I'm like, yeah, yeah. And I said, you know, and so I start telling him the story to amaze them. And I said, you know, uh, there was a guy a few years ago who um, was living with the Hadza hunter-gatherers in Tanzania, an anthropologist, and he took some of their shit and he mixed it up in hot water and he blasted it up his ass to see if he could um, start a micro uh, a hunter-gatherers microbiome in his own gut because hunter-gatherers have a much more varied microbiome than we do. Yeah, they're not as prone to, like, infection and all that right. stuff, right? Well, they don't yeah. grow up eating antibiotics all the time. Yeah, right? and like processed plastic. And... Exactly, right. So he wanted to see, like, what if I took some shit from a hunter-gatherer and stuck it up my own ass, basically, yeah. could I, would I be healthier? Yeah. Could I start that microbiome? Start from the back? Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah, interesting. So I've told this story to people before, It's and they all go, eh, that's crazy, that's disgusting, what are you talking about? I tell the story to this dude, and he goes, yeah, that's him. And he points down to the end of the table, and I said, what do you mean? This are you kidding? No, and I look at the end of the table, and the dude's sitting there smiling, and I said, he's the guy with the he's the guy with the hunter gatherer poop. <laughs> he's sitting there at the table <laughs> when I'm telling the story. Like, that's so cool! I have this erudite knowledge. And it turns out he spends half a year in Tanzania and half a year in this little town in Texas. Jeff Leach. So yeah, that's freaking crazy. I did a podcast with him the next day. And did they get? So he received the same microbiome experience, at, like it's a fecal transplant, right? Yeah. So was that the beginning of that research on fecal transplantation? No, people have been doing it yeah. before, um, but uh, he said that he monitored his microbiome and he said that it was more varied for two or three weeks and then it returned to baseline. Mm, so you have to stay around them probably. And I think you need to eat what they eat. And he, he doesn't. And, like, they have a lot of fiber in their diet, much more than we do. And, uh, yeah, he we talked on the podcast about their diet and some of the stuff that they eat. Like, they'll take the, they shoot a gazelle or something, they'll take the intestines of the gazelle with the 
the digested shit, essentially half shit, whatever. Yeah. And they'll just sort of like put it over the fire for a minute, not even <laughs> just give it a little, just, it it a just little blue sear it. You know? <laughs> yeah, just sear the poop just and to make just, sure. And eat that and like they do it regularly. That doesn't seem like a good flavor explosion. That's not like a <laughs> filet mignon or the small bowel. That sounds awful. Yeah, yeah. that's interesting. So they. Yeah, because I've read some uh, some research that even when you kiss someone, you get the, some of their microbiome. Yeah, well, there's a sort of theory that that's where kissing comes from, that mothers would chew food and sort of spit it into their baby's mouths, um, both to help them digest, but also to, um, you know, obviously unconsciously, but it, it um, helps establish the microbiome of the child from the mother. Um, from her saliva, uh, but also, I mean, the, one of the things I talked about in Civilized to Death is like, um, you know, cesarean deliveries are terrible for microbiome because when the baby's delivered vaginally, the not only the vaginal um, fluids of the mother, but also the stuff from the rectum, from the mother's rectum, gets smeared on the baby's face, and the, all the, that. Those microbes go in the nose, down the mouth, into the so it establishes the microbiome on the skin as they're coming in the out, eyes as they're being delivered because it's messy as hell, right? Yeah, that's the purpose of that mess. That mess establishes a starter microbiome on the baby. When a baby's de- delivered through cesarean, the microbiome of that baby is is taken from. The room. It's from the other doctors, the nurses, from the the curtains, from the sheets. I'm a C-section baby. My microbiome is all. I guess I'm a combination of all the sterile equipment in the. Yeah. Were you? Uh, and then I was in a NICU. I was oh. breastfed. Yeah. Well, being breastfed's a big help. So that's really good, especially the first few days. The I think what's it called? Cholesterol. I think is the the first stuff that comes out of the mother's yeah. breast is full of. These bacteria and thing that I hope I got that. I'm gonna to have to ask my mom after we stop talking. I'll text her. <laughs> well, you look healthy. <laughs> yeah, I feel I feel pretty good. The I know in some of the other research I've read on the on the effects of the microbiome too, like the the amount of conflict a couple has in a relationship affects the microbiome, right. increases the uh, op- no, leaky gut. You get more leaky gut mm-hmm. from it. Um, also, I was listening to some research from the Gottmans that they can predict the health of a baby based on the couple's behavior in the third trimester of a pregnancy. So that's kind of crazy how the mother's environment is so predictive of the child's environment. Yeah. Well, I mean, if you look just at the level of microbiome, you know, it makes sense that the child is born into the world that the mother's been occupying. Right. So if the mother is living in the Amazon, she's going to deliver a microbiome to that baby that's very different from a mother who's living in the Sahara Desert, let's mm-hmm. say, right? Or, or an Inuit woman living in the north because her body's been defending against different pathogens her whole life. And so what she's passing on to the kid is appropriate to that world. Mm-hmm. And so I guess... What they're arguing is that the same thing is happening in terms of anxiety levels and, you know, hormonal responses. It's preparing the baby for the world that the mother lives in. Yeah, so if the mother's in a very high-stress world, maybe that baby's going to be more prone to anxiety 
right? Because of a response to that. And we also know that, um, you know, getting back to epigenetic changes, we know that if um, someone suffered, you know, great trauma, two or three generations later, there are clear, predictable um, changes in the DNA. Still from the previous... Yeah, there were studies done in, um, I think it was in Holland, of um, people who lived through uh, great um, famine during World War II, I think. And maybe it was before that, because I know it was two or three or four generations. Uh, And so the great-grandchildren were still much more likely to be obese. Mm, I remember that. And it's also based on if it was the grandfather or the grandmother to mm. actually had changes, too. And they, and they looked at adopted kids. So yeah. It wasn't that you grew up in a family of people who ate a lot. It was like you totally in the DNA. That is so... I mean, when people start to learn this stuff, it's like, wait, maybe it's not all my fault. Maybe not. A, yeah. You know, like we're undoing generations of stuff that we inherit, not only in language patterns and right. relational patterns and, I mean, food choices. I mean, all of it is so collective. And you think about the effect of poverty and systemic oppression and all those yeah. things on what a child is being prepared for. And I, you know, and I know in babies that are born from mothers who were pregnant during nine 11 and during the Holocaust, they produce less, um, what's the stress hormone? It's eluding me. Uh, cortisol. Cortisol. They produce less cortisol. So they get, they get secondary PTSD. Uh, So they don't, they don't release it as much. So they get stressed much easier. hmm. That's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the the systemic oppression and just what it creates with us and well, I mean, even go, you know, just leave leave the molecular level and and talk about uh, shame. You know what we started talking about? Shame gets passed down through generations. You know, you might not even know your grandparents, and you're living with their hangups. You know, in ways that we can't imagine. Yeah, shame over divorce, shame over choices, shame. I mean, yeah. shame, shame over making decisions that uh the church has taught us send you to hell right you know as opposed to being a human yeah or make you gay wow all right man this has been unbelievable (laughs) we've gone all through the rabbit hole we got one hour yeah that's about yeah uh, usually um so tell people where they can find you, where they can get all the stuff. I, uh, first, I want to definitely give a plug to your book, Sex at Dawn, is unbelievable. It changed my perspective on the world, relationships, and as I said before, connected me to sort of like, what is the actual truth of us as mammals? And then second, I'm 100% going to be buying your book because I love your writing and your work, um, and everyone else should go pick up a copy of that. Um, yeah, Civilized to Death is available for pre-order on Amazon or at your local bookstore or whatever. And that's that's always helpful because uh, publishers get excited about pre-orders because it, it makes them... If there are a lot of pre-orders, then it's likely to hit the New York Times bestseller yeah. list and then it sort of you know picks up momentum. So that's always great. Um, but people can find me at my website, thatchrisryan.com or tangentiallyspeaking.com is the podcast. It's all in the same place. Oh, the podcast is so good. 
Thanks. You have so many amazing guests on there that just blew my mind about uh, civilization and history. And mm. um, I didn't really know a lot about bonobo research before I listened to your work because I was only ever presented chimpanzee research. Right. You know, so it was really That's interesting. Right. And then all of a sudden I'm like, bonobos, what the hell are these things that hump all the time? <laughs> you know, um, for fun, yeah. too. Yeah, I love Franz Duval's line about them. He's the primatologist who's probably studied them the most. And he said, chimps and bonobos, he said, uh, chimps use violence to get sex, and bonobos use sex to avoid violence. Hmm. That kind of sums them up. Yeah. Yeah, they're great. Um, yeah, I love doing the podcast, man. It's, I mean, well, you, you know what it's like, but it's, to me, it's it's really revolutionized my life. And you and I were talking earlier, like I, I sort of insist on doing them in person because I love meeting the people. Yeah. You know, I, you know, Wim Hof. Yeah. Man. Yeah. I yeah, met him. So he's an interesting he's, dude. Well, he's become a friend. Oh, that's you know, awesome. I went to Holland and hung out with him and his son's a friend of mine and, you know, just like people like that, and and these random Jeff Leach in Texas, and I. I That's funny. The, did you hear the one with the rattlesnake expert? No. Oh man, that was on the same trip. Same thing. This woman who listens to the podcast was like, "Hey, I got a buddy. I think it's a former boyfriend, uh, but he's guys in his seventies now." Uh, she said he lives in the desert, New Mexico. All he cares about is rattlesnakes. That's all he does. He studies around. <laughs> life. He follows them around. He pulls them out. He, he you know, counts them and, and tracks their migration patterns and all that stuff. And he's not doing it. He's not a scientist officially. He's not publishing papers. He just, that's his thing, right? And he lives in this little trailer in the desert. And she said, man, I'd love, I'd love it if you do a podcast with him. And I was like, sure, I'd love to. Is he into it? And she's like, no, no, he doesn't want to talk to anyone. <laughs> yeah. people, but I'll pressure him, you know? And so she did, and he agreed to meet with me, and we sat in the dirt uh, and recorded this podcast. And, man, it was so much fun. And he, it was great. He's like, no, I don't, I don't like people. I don't need to talk. I don't want to be famous. I don't know. You know, and, but by the end of it, he paid me a great compliment. He said, uh, he said, yeah, I, I don't like people, but uh, yeah, if you want to come around again sometime, I guess I'd be happy to meet you. Okay. That, that, seems like a, that seems like a real good one. Yeah, that was great. So that was funny. He's been bitten 15 times. And he doesn't die. Not yet. He's lost a, he lost a finger. Um, it was so great. I said, so 15 times, dude, like, what do you do? That You go to the hospital and get antivin. He's like, no, that's 20 grand each. That's 20 grand a pop. They're going to give you five vials or four vials, five grand a vial. I ain't doing that. I don't have that kind of money. I said, what do you do? He said, I ride it out. (laughs) (laughs) Just ride it out. That's like something your grandpa would tell you after you hurt yourself. Ride it out. Walk it off. Yeah. I'll make sure to link that episode then yeah, in the show notes. He's great. Rattlesnake, dude. You also have a website for your van trek, you know, with all your stuff in yeah. it. Yeah. Oh, well, there's, um, you're talking about the, the what with, makes this thing great? Yeah, with your podcast oh, equipment. Okay, and Yeah, because like I was saying, I, I don't, uh, I hate buying shit. I'm kind of anti-consumer. <laughs> yeah. You know, like my, my whole thing, I spent my 20s and 30s backpacking around the world. So my thing is like maximum experience, minimum expense, Yeah, you know, because 
I had to work some shitty job for every dollar I had, so I wanted to stretch them out. So I'm very sort of like, I don't buy stuff without really thinking about it and talking to people. And so I set up this uh, web page because uh, people write to me all the time, you know, what do you use for your podcast? What do you use for your man? What are you doing in here? What do you do? So I set up this web page, um, sort of like a place uh, to buy cool shit for people who don't like to buy shit. You know, so yeah, you, buy it once, get good once, stuff. It's good, it'll last you a long time. So it's called What Makes This Thing Great dot com, and uh, you know there are affiliate links, so uh, it kicks back three or four percent or whatever. You Helps say. fund your uh, Vanthropology. Vanthropology. Two thousand nineteen. People can go follow you on Instagram too. What's your Instagram handle? That Chris Ryan. That Chris Ryan, and the hashtag is Vanthropology two thousand nineteen. Yeah, just man, you can see 2018 and 2017. This is the third year I've done it. And you know that for those of you listening who are like, Mark's audio could get better on his podcast. I, we are on uh, Chris's uh, podcast setup right now, so you can hear the deliciousness of the sound. I will be investing in this setup this evening. So, um, Chris, thanks so much, man. I really yeah. appreciate your time. It's yeah. been such a pleasure. Yeah, you too. Thanks. For